and just looked out at the trees and the sky and the white clouds that were there and the sunshine. And all of a sudden my mind just opened and it dropped all those little concerns that I'd kind of been tight around. And I just opened to the sense of well-being and connection to nature and the vastness that that brings. And I just hung out there for a little bit. And then I went back to email and got plugged in again. But nonetheless, this shift was uh, a very pleasant one. It reminded me really of uh, something that Dogen Zenji said, a great Zen master in Japan, who said that to study Buddhism is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 things of this world. This is the shift that I went through, dropping the self and being awakened by the 10,000 things back into this easy and relaxed way of being. I mention this because it's a shift that we need to make in meditation over and over and over again. It is, in a way, the essence of right effort to step out of the small, constricted, uh, self-conscious world of I and my and to open up into the vastness of life and the beauty of life and the impersonality of life in that the mind really moves from uh, bondage into freedom. We need to find out how to do that over and over. This is a quote from Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, who was one of the great Dzogchen masters of the last half century. The purpose of Dharma practice is to know the nature of the non-deluded mind and to understand the workings of the deluded mind. This really encapsulates the scope of our practice. To know the nature of the non-deluded mind, that means to recognize this state of Freedom, at least relative freedom, ease, relaxation, openness, clarity, mindfulness, steadiness of attention. All the factors that are cultivated, commonly called the seven factors of enlightenment, which I think Kamala will be talking about later on in the retreat. And to understand the workings of the deluded mind. How do we get caught? How does this essential freedom, which is in some ways our deepest nature, How does it get obscured, covered over? What are the mechanisms by which we lose touch with that? So in the talk tonight, I want to spend a little more time on particularly the workings of the deluded mind, how we get caught and how to work with that situation when we do become caught. So I want to talk about in this evening, talk about working with difficult states of mind. It's really picking up from the talk Steve gave a few nights ago on the hindrances and expanding and uh, getting a little more specific and adding a few practical pointers to it. When we come into uh, meditation practice, we start to look at the contents of our mind, maybe for the first time, and we find that the mind has this huge range of experience. I think one of the awesome things about retreat is that it tends to unpack and open up that wide range of experience that is part of our birthright that we may not have touched for a long time. 
So we get exposed to some of the very most refined, sublime, even mystical states of being through our Dharma practice. States of great joy and happiness and bliss and calm. And on the other end of the spectrum, we open up often to those darkest corners of the mind, the most difficult things for us to experience. Intense feelings of loneliness or terror or despair and hopelessness. If we have the model that the point of our Dharma practice, the point of full enlightenment, is to be rid of a lot of the range of these difficult states, we may come in expecting them to go away rather quickly. And what we find is that they don't. For most of us, they don't. Um, I was asked to participate over the last weekend in a panel discussion for Buddha Dharma magazine on this topic of working with the difficult states of mind. There was a Tibetan Rinpoche, a Zen teacher, and I was the uh, token Theravadan, shall we say, on the call. So we were talking about what are the problems that people get into when they think that we should be quickly free of these difficult states of mind. It can lead to a lot of striving and a lot of tension. I suggested that maybe we should reposition our aim not to be rid of these states, but to come to equanimity with them, to come into a feeling of acceptance of them. Because when you think about it, we all have these qualities within us. This is just part of the human package. Every one of us knows this range of states of mind and states of heart. They're not foreign to any of us. And although I I deeply believe that part of our human possibility is that they can be ended through the process of awakening as the Buddha exemplified and many others have found, I also believe that for most of us that's a long journey. What I've observed in people who are far down that path is that well before these uh, difficult states of mind are actually uprooted or removed from the mind, beings' minds are so spacious and so full of other qualities that we develop, like love and compassion, that even when they arise, they don't have so much the power to disturb us. I believe that this happens before the full uprooting. I think this is a much more realistic goal for us in the relatively near term. If you look over the course of this retreat, the next several years of your Dharma practice, this is possible. It is possible to find the spaciousness and the acceptance, the qualities of loving kindness of heart, to be able to accommodate these difficult states and not be so disturbed by them. The uprooting may be a more distant goal. So for the time being, I wouldn't worry so much about that. In the near term, can we find a way not to be bothered so much by these states? And I think that is really possible. Suzuki Roshi, the Zen master who founded San Francisco Zen Center, once began a Dharma talk like this. He said, the difficulties you're experiencing now 
And he just paused. And he had a long pause. And you can imagine, this is probably in the middle of a session, an intensive period of retreat, somewhat like this, that people were probably on the edge of their seats. Yes, how am I going to get rid of that? He continued, the difficulties you're experiencing now will be with you for a long time. (laughs) Now, when I first heard this, I thought, this is a little discouraging. Where's the sense of progress? Where's the hopefulness in this practice? But as I hung out with it more, I came to feel it's actually very liberating. It's very liberating. Because what it says is, you can attain a high degree of inner freedom and a high degree of happiness. And still, these states of mind can be active in us. This is possible. So it says to me that the goal of a a high degree of freedom is not so remote. We can still find it with all the range of states of mind that we know today. They don't have to be plucked out. Rather, we can change our relationship to them. And it's primarily through understanding them that we change that relationship. We come to see that strong emotion, even difficult ones, aren't necessarily a problem if we don't make them a problem. If we grasp onto them and uh, get very concerned about them, have the idea we shouldn't be feeling them, dwell on the concept that they've been a problem for a long time, that they're a deep pattern of ours, that they really need to be changed in some way, we can make a problem of them. But if we simply let them arise, express their nature, and pass away, which they all will, they don't have to be problematic. As I mentioned the other morning, you watch children go into these emotional states without fear. Children will rush headlong into joy and happiness and delight. And in a moment, they can transform to anger and sadness and frustration. And then they can drop out of that back into happiness. And the states just blow through them like the clouds through an empty sky. That's part of our potential also. That's really what's freeing. that We don't have to be afraid of these states. We can let them come and go. In this greater opening to them, the heart becomes purified because we're not obstructing them, we're not getting caught on them. As they come and go, they move more easily. This notion of purification in the Buddhist tradition has a very specific meaning. It means that the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion are weakening. This is what we mean by purifying We come to understand that happiness isn't about having more things or attaining outside things. Happiness comes from the heart which is purified. That is, as the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion are weakened in our hearts, more happiness comes in their place. This is the route to happiness. So the first step in relating to these difficult states is knowing what we're feeling. And this is harder than it sounds. It sounds easy. Oh yeah, just know what you're feeling. Oh, that's mindfulness. I got it. You know, that's a third foundation. Easy. The Buddha described it in a paragraph about this long. No problem. But it's trickier than that. 
I remember once, uh, some years ago, I was sitting a six-week retreat here, and the, I think the instruction period had finished, and I was just leaving through the back door of the hall and going out to my walking path. The retreat had been going about two weeks, and I found one place uh, down toward the, beyond the tennis courts where I like to walk. So I walked out of the back door. I, I felt I was very mindful at that point, two weeks into the retreat, I was really with the lifting and moving and placing, lifting, moving and placing. And then I looked down to my walking path and there was somebody in it. And the thoughts began. What are they doing in my walking path? They've been here for two weeks. They know I walk there. And then I was just lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. And I thought some more. Are they trying to mess with my mind? Or something. Did I cut in front of them in the breakfast line this morning? And then lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. And I thought, they can't be very developed. They haven't been paying very much attention these two weeks. I've been walking there every walking period, lifting, moving, placing. So I just continued walking and I found another spot down there, which actually turned out to be just as good, to my great surprise. But it was about 30 minutes into my walking period that I realized, I'm angry. <laughs> I thought I'd been really mindful because I was with lifting, moving, placing, and I didn't realize I was angry at this person for taking my path. As long as I didn't know that I was angry, all I could do was spin out in being angry. And I spin out the story. Why did they do this? They shouldn't have done it. They were wrong and I was right. Once I saw that the anger was there, then I could start to relate to it. And when I could relate to it, it could change. And very quickly, seeing it and seeing how really petty it was, it evaporated. But this is the way these states often work. They come and they uh, seduce us. They take us over by telling a story about the way things are. And I was caught in the story. The story was, they're in my path, that is wrong, and I'm right. So as long as I was caught in that story, I was blind to seeing what I was feeling. All these difficult states of mind that we encounter have a story that we buy into that props them up. And I'll talk about this for each of the states that I talk about tonight. I'll call this their storyline. So the storyline is a belief or a view about the situation. And when we believe it, it props the emotion up and therefore sustains it. If you take the storyline away, the emotion will crumble because there's not that conceptual support for it. I find this really interesting because what it says is that the entanglement of our bondage, of our suffering, is not just an emotional activity. It's an emotional activity that's also supported by views, views and opinions. And that's why in the Buddhist path, the combination of opening the heart, which is on the emotional side, needs to be combined with the awakening of wisdom to see through the views. So the path is this beautiful combination of right understanding, which is really of, of the mind, and right attitude, which is of the heart. 
in our emotional life, these two also come together. I'll talk about that as we go through these states. This not seeing of what we're feeling is a form of ignorance. In terms of the uh, kilesas or the defilements, greed, aversion, and delusion, this is the operation of delusion. When you're feeling something strongly and not knowing that you're feeling it, like in my walking experience, I was deluded at that time. That was the deluded mind, not knowing what was going on. Mindfulness is the primary tool that cuts through this kind of delusion and puts us in touch with what our experience actually is. And that's why I like to say that mindfulness carries the tip of wisdom into our experience. The key in working with all these states is to take the mindfulness, the attention, out of the storyline and put it on the emotion itself. When I could get away from my view, they're wrong, and I could just come to focus on the irritation or the anger, the state became very workable. As long as I was involved in the story, it wasn't really workable. When Steve talked the other night, he talked about the classical five hindrances that the Buddha described as the obstacles to deepening meditation. Tonight, I want to do a slightly different list. And this is a list that, in my experience, are the most common states of mind that, at least as Westerners, we run into uh, in our practice that form the most difficult parts of our mind to relate with. And the five that I'll talk about tonight are desire, anger, sadness, fear, and self-judgment. These are the five that I see most often, both in myself and in working with other people. Something that I started to notice that was interesting about these first four is that they kind of make sense in this um, particular structure that occurred to me. One is that they're in relation to uh, pleasure and pain. And another is that they're in relation to past and future. So this is just a categorization that came to me as I was thinking about these states. So let's just go through and see. If there's something that's going to, uh, something of a pleasurable nature that's going to happen in the future, what's the emotion that's most likely to arise around that? Anybody? Desire. Yeah, when something's pleasurable and it's in the future, we tend to relate to it from desire. What about when something's painful and in the future? Fear, right? So another way to say this is hope and fear. Hope and fear govern the mind in relation to the future when we're not settled in the present moment. Okay? Now let's look at the past. If there was something pleasurable in the past that's no longer here or no longer with us, what's the dominant emotion? Couldn't quite hear. Sadness. Grief is about the loss of that which was pleasurable that we no longer have. So sadness or grief. Uh, Loneliness could be a variation. Despair could be a variation. Now this last one may be a little tricky, and there may be other answers, but 
Think about if something painful happened in the past. What's the dominant emotion when you look back on it? Let's say someone else caused that pain. Sorry? Judgment or anger. Yeah, judgment or anger. So I think that's why these four are so strong for us. They have to do with these fundamental poles of pleasure and pain painted against the the backdrop of past and future. And these are the emotions that often come. And then I bring in self-judgment because... It seems to be our Western hell realm to deal with. So we'll talk about that a little bit also. Each of these states has a mood. It has expressions in the body. And it has this storyline that's bound up with conceptual thought. So I'll talk about all of those. So desire is this movement of mind that leans forward to something pleasurable that it wants to happen in the future. This force comes very, very often on a retreat. And and sometimes it can be quite heart-wrenching. The force of missing people, missing places, missing where you feel comfortable, missing certain kinds of activities that that have meant a lot to you, Um, even missing certain kinds of food or clothing can come up quite poignantly for people on retreat. As you look into the experience of desire, you'll start to see that there's a kind of comfort by bringing up these uh, familiar places, people, objects, that is a pleasure. So in a way, it's a way of bringing a pleasure into the moment. But at the same time, as you investigate the quality of desire, you realize there's also something that's always unsatisfying in desire. There's something that's unfulfilled the very missing of the pleasant leaves a kind of hole in the heart. And it leaves this yearning, a feeling of not being uh, fulfilled, not being complete. So it has within it, uh, intrinsic within desire, is this sense of dissatisfaction, of unsatisfactoriness. So desire always carries in its wake a trail of dukkha, a feeling of dukkha. Because, you know, one of the curious things is we never seem to want what we already have. Have you noticed that? When was the last time you wanted a hand at the end of your arm? (laughs) It never occurs to us to want that unless it was gone. If our hand was taken away, we would want it a lot. But while it's here, it's not an object of desire. We always want what we don't have, and that's the dukkha of desire. I was teaching in Italy a few years ago, uh, which was a joy, I have to say. Uh, All the things you imagine about uh, Italian yogis are probably true. Uh, First of all, it was very hard for them to stop talking. The the silence was not quite as uh, well-founded as the silence is here. Uh, The culture of the retreat center was a little different. Uh, they wanted to put out red wine at lunch and dinner. (laughs) So we had to ask them, please, to take that away. But nonetheless, there was an espresso machine just outside the dining hall. So after lunch, you know, the coins were going in and the cups were coming out. 
Not as much sloth and torpor at 2.15 sit, though. That was good. And I found that uh, a lot of the Italian yogis had this really beautiful uh, fluency with their emotions. They're very comfortable talking about what they were feeling and more in touch than I had tended to be before I began practice in knowing what I was feeling. And they weren't shy about talking about it. It felt very, like they were very at ease in their emotional life. So on about the third day of the retreat, I had an interview, or translators for all the interviews, had an interview with a, a very nice young Italian guy who came in and said he was having a hard time settling into the retreat. And I said, oh, why is that? He said, well, this is August. This is our vacation time in Italy. And I had two choices. I could come on this retreat or my friends asked me to go to the Caribbean with them for a 10-day vacation. And I said, oh, why did you come on the retreat? And he said, because the tickets to the Caribbean were all sold out. So, you know, if you kind of compare in your mind, let's see, Caribbean vacation, uh, warm sun, golden sands, blue water, or sitting and walking for 18 hours a day, hmm, he was having a little trouble settling. So we talked about how the force of desire, wanting to be with his friends, the images of the vacation spot, could be affecting his retreat in the moment a little bit. And what if he didn't have those thoughts about the Caribbean, then how, how would it be to be here? So he went off and meditated, and when he came back in for his next interview, which was with another teacher, the problem had gone away. He saw that what was disturbing him was the wanting. It's not that there was anything wrong with the retreat or that he couldn't settle. It was that he kept taking himself out. And when he let go of the desire, he landed in the retreat, and then everything opened fine. This is what desire does. It takes us out of the present and creates a conflict. It creates a sense of insufficiency where there may not be any. One of my friends is a greed type, a personality type that's dominated by the force of wanting. He says there's a a line that he uses when desire is present in him. He uses a lot. He said the line is, he asks, Is there anything truly lacking in this moment? So when desire is strong, that's a good question to ask. Is there anything truly lacking in this moment? Or is it basically okay the way it is? And it's just the wanting that is stirring us up. In the meditative environment, sometimes the things we want come to be the special things that happen on retreat. We may want a particular meal. uh, We may want a particular meditation experience. Sometimes the deepest, deepest longings are to re-experience some form of sitting that we'd had earlier. So start to notice if this comes in because this will create attention. And as long as you're looking for some particular experience, you're not open to the moment as it is. And all the unfolding of the Dharma comes from aligning with the moment the way it is. This is the golden doorway in practice. So I start to notice that in myself if I'm having thoughts about 
the way a sitting was a day ago or two days ago or a week ago. So start to notice that. Are you dwelling on a past experience of sitting or walking or being in nature? Are those thoughts and images in your mind? If they are, check and see if there's a wanting at work. And if there is, that's where to be. Otherwise, the wanting will block you being in the present. So you don't have to make the wanting go away. You can establish mindfulness right then and there by being with the wanting. That's what's true. Relate with that. And as you open to that, you come back into the present moment. The storyline that underlies the wanting, you can look into this for yourself. This uh, might, might vary from person to person, from incident to incident. The basic storyline in wanting is something like, I would be happy if I had this thing. I would be happy. That's why desire becomes such a big deal, because there's implicit within it, and it's so usually subconscious, this belief, it would make me happy. It's the key to my happiness. Of course, what we don't do when we pick up a storyline or a view like that, we don't look at impermanence. We don't realize that if we get the thing we want, sooner or later either it will go away or it will fail to satisfy us. Because we've had many, many opportunities to get the things we want and we haven't found a lasting happiness from them. But we ignore that in the moment of desire. We don't look at that uh, truth of impermanence. The second of the uh, states that I wanted to talk about is, is anger, which is one form of aversion. Steve talked the other night about aversion as a hindrance. And aversion has a lot of different flavors. You know, just a partial list. Anger, ill will, hatred, impatience, irritation, fear, sadness, grief, judgment, blame, resentment, depression, despair, resistance. Are you overwhelmed yet? So, and that's just partial. I'm sure you could think of more. So aversion has a lot of different flavors. Anger is a strong one. The general tone of aversion is not liking, negativity, seeing things uh, in a critical frame of mind. When we're feeling negative, everything tends to rub us the wrong way. Everything appears imperfect, flawed, not quite right. The Buddha told this story uh, to a group of monks who were standing around in the clearing in a forest. Actually, it wasn't a story. It was happening on the spot. And as they were standing around in the forest, this jackal uh, ran out of the forest and stopped in the clearing, and it stood there a minute. But it obviously wasn't peaceful because it immediately ran into the hollow of a tree and it lay down, but just momentarily. And then it jumped up and it ran into a cave. And it stood there for a minute and then it ran back into the forest. And the Buddha said, monks, did you see that jackal? It wasn't comfortable in the forest. It wasn't comfortable in the clearing. It wasn't comfortable in the tree hollow and it wasn't comfortable in the cave. It wasn't comfortable standing or lying down or running. It blamed its suffering on the forest, on the clearing, on the tree hollow, on the cave. It blamed its suffering 
on standing, on lying, on running. The Buddha said the problem was with none of these. Monks, that jackal had mange. The mange was its suffering. It couldn't be comfortable because it had mange. Aversion is like mange. When the mind is in a state of aversion, nothing feels good. Nothing feels right. And we tend to blame our problem on all the other conditions. But the problem is the aversion in the mind. Everything rubs it the wrong way. When the um, sense of the problem has... uh, Let me say when the sense of aversion has been there for a long time, there's a chronic sense of aversion, it may, it probably is masking some long-time pain, long-standing pain that we aren't able to open to. So the aversion kind of gets implanted or conditioned by the presence of pain in the heart or mind or body that's been there for a long time. When there's a kind of long-standing pattern of aversion, the classical antidote, and a really effective antidote, is loving-kindness practice. This is mentioned in the suttas over and over. The Buddha talks about metta as the antidote to aversion because metta has a way of uh, softening the mind, opening the heart, and letting us then open to and include uh, that pain. Anger is a particular form of aversion. And here the storyline, as it was when I was caught in my walking experience, is basically, I'm right and you're wrong. You shouldn't have done what you did and it hurt me. That's the basic storyline. And if we listen to the thoughts of that storyline again and again and again, we sustain the anger. But sometimes this is a little tricky because the thoughts could be true. You know, in the case of my walking meditation, it really wasn't. There, there was no plaque on that walking path that said Guy Armstrong, much as I would have liked to put one there. That walking space was open to anybody. It was my delusion to think that it was mine. But it's different at other times. People take things from us that do belong to us, that we have a right to expect will be there when we go back. And in that case, it's not proper for people to take those things. This is the point of uh, the second precept, not taking that which isn't freely given. So we may be right. And then really awful things do happen in the world. Awful things happen in this world that really shouldn't happen. There's war, uh, there's murder, there's racism, there's violence and cruelty in the world. It really shouldn't happen, but it does. So it may appear that getting angry is really an appropriate response to those things. And it can be a useful motivator for social justice. I think many people have drawn on the power of of outrage to try to correct things in the world that are wrong. And in that sense, it can be a useful motivator. But as meditators, we have to take a look One, at what's the most effective way to change the world and whether that involves anger or love. That's something for each of us to wrestle with. 
But we also need to look at our own experience. And here on retreat, this is probably the most important place to look. In terms of our own experience, what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness? So in the text, the classical text, they say that getting angry at someone has within it an element of wanting to hurt that person. This is an interesting place to look. When we talk about anger in Western psychology, we often uh, kind of condone it or approve it or say it's justified. But from the point of view of the Dharma, we really want to look and see what's going on in the mechanism of anger. And I found in looking at my own anger, often there is integral to it a wish to hurt the other person. Now, in Buddhism, the enjoyment of hurting somebody else is called cruelty. It's the far enemy of compassion. Compassion is that heartfulness that wishes to relieve the other's suffering. Cruelty is that frame of mind that enjoys someone else's cruelty. Wanting to hurt someone has within it basically the beginning of cruelty. When I saw that, I had to question anger uh, in a really deep way because I couldn't live with the sense of myself being a cruel person. I couldn't live with that truth about myself and feel good about it. Now, it, it so happens that it is a truth. Sometimes I do get angry. Within that anger, I see that I want to hurt, but I can't feel good about it. So it's made me more resolved to look really, really closely and really deeply into this phenomenon of anger. So what the texts say is that wanting to get angry at somebody is like picking up a hot coal and getting ready to throw it at them so that they'll, also, so that they'll be burned by the hot coal. The problem is that we pick it up first and we burn ourselves before we ever throw it. So start to take a look at this side of anger that before we can ever express it, we are hurting ourselves in the holding of it and the maintaining of it. It was the seeing of the suffering that I felt as a result of my own anger that was most effective in getting me to let go. And, getting, and letting go means basically stop the thoughts that blame the other person and justify myself. These are the thoughts that feed the fires of anger. As we think more of those thoughts, we're just throwing more logs on the fire of anger. So it's a big renunciation, but if you practice with it, you'll see it's the way through anger. It's the way not to suffer from our own anger, and that's the letting go of the blame. When we let go of that blame, the mind starts to cool. Because like all states, anger will just manifest its impermanence. It's the blame that sustains it, that feeds it. When we let go of it, it starts to pass. So in Buddhist circles, this um, work with anger is considered a really important part of the path. The Dalai Lama tells a story about a monk that he uh, had known in Tibet before 1959. 1959 is when he left Tibet for India, uh, 10 years after the Chinese invasion. 
and he thought that this monk was just a rather ordinary practitioner. Then some years later, he met the monk again in India, and the monk told him his story. He said that he had been in a Chinese prison for 20 years, and finally he had been released, and then he had escaped from Tibet and made his way to India. The Dalai Lama hears many, many stories like this. I can't even imagine uh, the bigness of his compassion to be able to hold all these stories that he hears. So he asked the monk about his time in prison. And the monk said, well, he often felt in danger. And the Dalai Lama said, "Uh, were you tortured? Were you in fear for your life? And the monk said, yes, I was tortured. Uh, And I was in fear for my life, but that's not the danger that I meant. I mean that I was in danger of being angry with my captors. The Dalai Lama said that his opinion of this monk uh, was greatly enhanced by that comment, that he had the devotion to practice in that way, to work with non-anger, even under those extreme conditions. Sometimes the sense of anger or criticalness gets directed toward ourselves and manifests as self-judgment. This comes up often in retreat, and I think part of it is that we lose our social connection. We don't have the kind of social strokes that we do in daily life where people are interacting with us and we're getting signs of uh, love and affection. And when those signs of love and affection are taken away and we're just on our own resources, And this more critical part of the mind often comes out and we uh, find ourselves lacking uh, in many ways. This is actually a sign of what's referred to in the tradition as mana or conceit. Conceit is the tendency to compare ourselves to others. And if we compare ourselves as being better than, equal to, or worse than, it's considered a sign of mana and it's considered an impurity of the mind. The Buddha basically said there's no need to ever compare oneself to another um, in terms of uh, one's stature. Certainly one can compare in skill levels and certain qualities or attributes, but to say that one person is better than another, there's no need to say that. So the mind doesn't, doesn't make that comparison. But this quality of comparing mind or mana or conceit is only uprooted at arahantship. So only the fully enlightened person no longer compares. That means the judging mind is going to be around for a while. So again, it's good to get to know how to work with it. The storyline with the judging mind is some form of, I'm not good enough, I'm not um, loving enough, or I'm not lovable enough. Something like that, some form of that. I'm, I'm insufficient as a person. Sometimes this, these thoughts, these opinions of ourselves start from a kind of rational observation. I'll just tell you what one, um, one person reported who I work with in, in California. She's a therapist. And one of her clients left her. And that happens all the time, of course. But uh, it caused her a lot of self-doubt. And the first thing that she thought was, oh, I'm just not the right therapist for that person. And that actually made complete sense. You know, my personality is not a match for their personality. That was fine. 
But then it went to, I don't have enough compassion or warmth to be able to help them. And then it went to, I'm really not a very loving person. And then it went to, actually, I've never loved anyone and no one's ever loved me. (laughs) And at that point, she was just crushed by the weight of her own judgments of herself. But I share this because I hope you can see this is not an isolated problem, that we all make these exaggerations of ourself. And in fact, any judging thought that really uh, burdens you is probably not true. It's probably not true. The thoughts that really burden us are the ones that go too far. I can never love. I have never loved. No one has ever loved me. I don't have any friends. No one cares about me. These really, really huge generalizations generally overstep the bounds of truth. So one way of working with those judging thoughts is to turn and ask the judge. Have you met the judge yet, by the way? Anybody met the judge? You know, judge is just a thought. But if you want to get playful with a judge, you can give them a personality. You can give them a face. You can give them a name. You can draw them like a cartoon. What does your judge look like? What do they sound like? You can have fun and just kind of make something up here. Uh, One person that I work with, uh, their judge is named Darth Vader. So they're often saying, welcome, Darth. Nice to have you back. Thank you, Darth, for that opinion. So you can turn to your judge and say, what you just said about me isn't true. Please restate it as a true statement. And if you can get the judge to restate it as a true statement, you'll find it's usually not that bad. It's something like, I wasn't the right therapist for that person. No big deal. So you can neutralize the judgments by making them truthful for a change. One of the other ways to work with judgment, uh, Joseph may have talked about in part one. It's one of his favorites. Every time you hear a judging thought, you append the phrase, and the sky is blue. And that just makes it light. You're walking through the lunch line, and you see somebody took a lot of dessert. You say, that person took too much dessert, and the sky is blue. You can try that also. This sense of um, not being good enough is really widespread uh, in the West today. And I, I really think it's a comment on our culture that it's so widespread. I don't know quite why it's happened, um, but it seems to be a big problem. Sometimes it grows stronger and becomes self-hatred. I was uh, just recently ordained as, as a monk in Thailand. I mean, this is a long time ago, but in the story I had just ordained. And my preceptor asked me, I was traveling to a, a forest monastery to be on retreat for a few months, and my preceptor asked me to stop in at a branch monastery of his in Chiang Mai. So I stopped in and had a very pleasant few days there. There was good food. Uh, Chiang Mai is a beautiful town. And I got to hang out with this other Western monk who was there who'd been in robes quite a long time at that point, 13, 14 years. And I enjoyed him a lot. He was uh, very large-hearted, liked people, liked to converse with people. The Thai people really appreciated him a lot. He would uh, give interviews to them in the morning. He spoke 
sorry, in the afternoon, he spoke good Thai. In the morning, he'd meditate. He'd receive people in the afternoon, very warm, and drew a lot of uh, Thai people in to meet with him. Then one morning, the first morning I was there, we went out on alms round together. He went first as a senior monk. I went behind. And then there were two novices behind us, young boys, novice monks. And I didn't understand why they were coming, because usually the novices do not go out on alms round. So he and I uh, went out. I followed him, went down the road, and all these people started coming out when they saw him coming at his usual hour. And very, very soon our bowls were filled up. He was well-known. He was well-liked. He was well-supported. And uh, it kind of showed because his bowl uh, was quite big. It was, it was bigger than this bell. And it kind of matched his girth because he was also a big guy. He was obviously well-supported. So we both filled up our bowls, and then he motioned to duck down an alley. There's no food in an alley. Why are we going here? So we went in the alley, and then the novices opened up their robes. And hanging over their shoulders, they had big plastic bags. So we took all the foodstuffs out of our bowls, put them in the novices' plastic bags. They covered up. We put the lid on our bowls. We went down the street again and filled up our bowls again. And then when we went back to the monastery, we had a huge amount of food. We ate well. The novices ate well. Some other monks ate well. The nuns, the lay people all ate well. All out of, really, the metta, the love that the Thai people had for this monk and his spirit of warmth and loving kindness. So I just, I, I was very impressed. I thought he was really just a natural, kind of a natural meditator. But then as we got to talking, he said that, you know, it wasn't always like this, that I spent the first nine years that I was in robes working through my self-hatred. Nine years. But he had totally transformed through that practice because he had a very, very uh, warm nature and was very well liked in the community. Really transformed. Over time, what really offsets self-judgment is uh, the confidence in our own goodness, our own basic goodness. As we come more and more to trust that the non-deluded mind is our basic nature, is awake, alive, and growing in us, that offsets the sense that there's anything insufficient or lacking. We have, each of you have everything you need. And it's just a matter of clearing away the obscuration so that that shines through more and more. As we come in touch with that and we gain more confidence, we know that our heart is really good. Fear I'd like to save and talk about another time. I think I may want to talk about it at length on another evening. And for sadness, I just want to say that um, the storyline here is usually something like, I can't be happy because I've lost this thing. That's the, really the root of sadness or grief. I was happy before when I had this. Because I've lost it, I can't be happy. And that is often such a deep-rooted view in us that it's very hard to open to the feeling of sadness. We've come to believe that it, it, it's blocked our happiness. The loss of that thing has blocked our happiness. So there's often the fear with sadness, and you might say this is a sub-storyline, the fear that if we open to the sadness, we're going to get drowned or lost in that deep pool 
of unhappiness and sorrow. So we may hold ourselves back from feeling it, from opening to it, out of that fear. But that is just a story. It's just a view or a belief. It's not true. Grief of any sort has the ability to come up, be experienced, and then eventually released. But we just have to have the willingness and the trust to go into it. It won't happen all at once. But to experience it and back off, to experience it and back off, little by little, we find that it starts to unfold itself and becomes more, uh, words somebody used the other day, permeable. We start to see little holes or little dents in the sadness. And it's a sign that it's starting to weaken and can fall away. So in all these cases, the sense of freedom doesn't come from getting rid of the state. These states will come to visit for a long time. But it comes by understanding their nature, how they're put together, this mechanism that involves the sensations in the body, the mood in the mind, and this underlying belief or storyline about them. As we start to understand the mechanisms that put these states together, they don't fool us anymore. We start to see, oh, that's just wanting. This is how it makes one feel. This is just anger. These are the causes and conditions. This is the remedy. When the causes and conditions are no longer there, the state passes away. All these states will exhibit their own impermanence if they're not clung to. And this is where our, our basic faith comes, that we can open to them. None of them will be here forever. If we open and let them express themselves, themselves, all of them will also pass. They get stuck when we don't have that trust and we close down to the feeling. So what we're really seeing as we start to get more familiar with their real nature is they're just like passing clouds, like aspects of the weather. They arise, they express, they pass away. And in this, we're really seeing their emptiness. They don't have any essence, and they're not lodged in us. They are not our deepest nature. As Steve said the other night, they're just visitors. We're really seeing the empty nature of these phenomena. I'd like to just close with this poem from uh, Rilke. It's from a book called uh, The Book of Hours, translated by... Uh, Joanna Macy and Anita Barrows. It's kind of nice to have a Buddhist take on Rilke's poetry. And in this particular poem, just to set the stage, uh, Rilke is imagining uh, that God creates human beings, but before launching them into life, gives them a little pep talk. So this is the pep talk. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out in the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You, sent out beyond your memory, go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Now, give me your hand.
Let's just sit for a moment together. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Insight Meditation Society on November 11, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Aud. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.